Thanks. All right, you guys, welcome. Good morning, everybody. Let me clean up Jordan's mess over here. We have several bulletins that are up here. There's one, there's some more over there. All right, um, very excited. Some of you, again, as Jordan mentioned already, we had the, the, um, the beach ball thing, and you thought, I'm never <laughs> coming back. That was a waste. Um, actually, we are. if you're new with us, it's a total celebration for us. This used to be a wall right here. Some people have never, they haven't sat here in a while. Last time they sat, they used to kind of take comfort sleeping, like kind of sleeping against the wall. And I was just kind of, dra- you know, going on and on. They just would kind of lean against it and fall asleep. And now there's no wall. They have to stay awake. But this used to be a divided worship center. It's not anymore. And so uh, if you were, a couple weeks ago, again, new folks, we had a, um, we had a blimp. We had an eight-foot blimp that someone had at one of our campuses. And we remote control flew it into the wall. We tried to get it to go across. But anyway, it came across eventually. So we're celebrating that we're together. Thank you for, um, hopefully you get a sense that we're a church that, um, take, we take a lot of stuff seriously, but not ourselves, and, um, you know, hopefully you got a chance to kind of, you know, if you didn't like the person you're sitting next to, you could do a little passive-aggressive and, oh, I was aiming at the ball. I didn't mean to hit you in the face. I just, I don't know. It's so fun to be together. Whatever. But, um, again, we're glad that you're with us. There's so much happening. One of the things um, we talk about as a church is that this is, um, this is a place for people who are looking for a way to follow, for people or kind of looking for a community of people that are not perfect. We are not perfect. We say that we're a group of people learning to follow Jesus and love other people, and none of us does that 100% of the time. None of us gets that right all the time. And, you know, if you're looking for a place where everybody has all the answers and has it all perfect, my gosh, this just isn't it. And, uh, man, this is a place for people on a journey. So welcome. If that's what you're looking for, that's kind of who we are. Um, A couple weeks ago, or last week I said we kind of missed something, which was, it's kind of a big deal for us, which is that we um, we missed celebrating our teachers and educators and people that are connected in some way with coaching or mentoring kids and we really want to take a moment to do that. Um, you know, we actually, we're, we're a learning community. We get some things, you know, some things right some of the time, but we do require people to help us, to teach us to do things. One of the things is that we almost got right. Again, we're trying to reduce our, our, our bulletin uh, that we put in there and all that kind of stuff. And so we, we're getting closer. We now have the outline on the back of your bulletin, which is pretty cool. Um, so, however, <laughs> we didn't format it right. So if you're new and you fill out one of those connect cards, you lose the bottom of the message which is the most important words in the entire world. And you just deposit them and leave them here at church. So we're learning. We're getting there, okay, guys? But we are getting there. Um, and we do require teachers to help us get to that place. So here's what I want to do. We believe as a church community that teachers are critical. We believe that um, as I have, I have three little kids and watching what is actually happening isn't just they're learning about how to spell and read and, you know, uh, do a little bit of math or whatever else. They're learning about... Um, they're actually becoming, they're actually being shaped into becoming people that, um, and teachers have a huge influence on that. And, and so I bet everybody in this room could point to at least one teacher in their life that probably impacted the way that they live now. So we understand this to be a pretty sacred responsibility that teachers and educators and coaches and anybody connected with schools has. So here's what we're going to do. If you are connected in education in any way, any capacity, you're a teacher, you're a coach, you're a counselor, you're an admin, whatever it is, would you stand up right now? We want to let you know how much we appreciate you. So that's your teacher, coach. Yeah. Don't sit down. Don't sit down. Don't sit down. Stay standing. Don't sit down. Don't sit down. Don't sit down. Come on. We're going to keep, we're going to keep clapping for you. You need this. Yeah. Now, when the applause fades, you're going to want to sit down. Don't sit down again. Don't sit down. We still have more to do. Because here's what I know about you guys, teachers. I know that you deal with people every day who are completely uninformed about how hard your job is or how to do it, and they tell you as if they know how to do your job for you with great enthusiasm. You know what you should do, and I, I know that you have to deal with those people and smile at them and go, I got it. I've been to school for this. I've been doing this for a long time. 
I'm doing great. Now, and I know you deal with kids of all different kinds. Some of them you deal with kids that are angels, like my own children. And you're just thankful every day that they're in your class. And others of you have to deal with kids that are not so angelic. And they're tough. And their parents are tough. And you're shaping their lives. And we want you to know that we really believe in what you're doing. And you have a sacred responsibility. And so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray for you. For those of you who are around teachers, coaches, these folks who are standing, would you, um, would you put your hand like towards them? If you're close enough to them, you can put a hand on their shoulder. You can let them know that you appreciate them. And we want to pray for you and be with you in this time of teaching and leading kids in whatever capacity that you do that. Father, we know that what is... Um, what is so difficult is to be an underpaid, underappreciated shaper of lives. And that's really what teachers are. Father, we believe in education. We believe that what happens between um, the, the morning hours and that after, all through that afternoon time where kids are being taught, they're not just simply being taught how to do math. They're not simply being taught how to answer questions about the states or about government or about history or about, uh, about science. Father, we're actually... Um, we're entrusting, we entrust kids to people who will shape their lives. They have a very important role. Jesus, would you, would you be with, in a very real way, these teachers and these coaches, these educators, these admins, as they deal with parents who are concerned, as they help to shape the lives of students, as they come against um, confrontation, difficulty, would you grant them peace when they need it? Would you grant them energy when they need it? Would you allow them to know that we participate with them and believe in what they're doing and that we, um, Father, might stand behind them as a church community saying we are for you and with you and believe in what the work that you do. And so, Jesus, would you continue to work in their lives as they begin um, really this, this, this year of teaching? Um, would you enable them to shape lives in powerful, powerful ways? So, Jesus, we're grateful for what you do through them and in them. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Let them know again, you guys. We appreciate you guys, teachers, so much. <clears throat> All right, now we're in a series called Hello, My Name Is. And, you know, basically we're asking a question, probably among the most critical questions we could ask in our lives is sort of that idea or that question about our own ability to self-perceive. Like, who are we really? I mean, we introduce ourselves. What are we, what are we really saying? And as we think about that question, even more, probably I would say in some ways, less significant about that question, I mean not less significant than that question, is how others perceive us. So not only how do we see ourselves, but how, how, do, how does everybody else see us? You know, one of the things um, I, I, um, I, I've been wondering about is how does, our, how does our own church perceive itself and how does it present itself? You know, I go to visit churches, I mentioned this throughout the series, I, I go to visit churches and I try to see things I could learn. I sort of encounter different worship leaders and worship pastors. I try to meet with folks if I can, not always, but just try to go and learn some stuff. And in every church I go to, that's, that church is essentially introducing itself to whoever's new, which in those cases I'm a new person. What's the personality? What marks that church? What is it really? And I wondered for us, how does Mariner's Church Mission Viejo introduce itself both corporately as a body of people who are here, but also how do we introduce ourselves individually? And so for the past couple weeks we talked about, we started with this passage in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is written by a prophet named Ezekiel, cleverly enough. And <laughs> the vision he gets is like this. He gets the vision of a temple, the temple. This is where the Jews worship. And out of the temple flowed this river. And out of this river, people who were in the world, who were in a dry and arid landscape, are getting blessed from the overflow of the water that comes out of the temple. And then Jesus will say, well, we looked at this a couple weeks ago. He says, actually, you know what? I'm the temple. And then he says this thing, it's just kind of bizarre. He says, anybody who walks with me, essentially, he says, it has me living inside of them, and out of them becomes this flow of water. In other words, Paul, the Apostle Paul will say it even more specifically. He'll say it like this. He'll say, don't you know, speaking to the early church, that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? Meaning, 
every person who belongs to Jesus is a temple which is bringing this kind of refreshing, restoring water, this restoring power to a thirsty world. That's sort of critical to our identity about who we are. So we talked last week a little bit, maybe less comfortably, about the idea that a lot of us, in so many ways, well, all of us in some ways, are a part of a mess that we can't clean up. That isn't our identity, but that's part of who we are. Is we actually, we met, we mess stuff up. And I told you last week, if you're with us, like, listen, this is like act two of a three act play. I mean, or a three act movie. It's gonna feel we're gonna resolve some of this stuff. And what do we do with all this mess? And what's that mean in today's message? And what do we actually do with all that stuff? And that's where we are today. That you, God intended you to be a temple, which was refreshing the entire world, and that we sometimes mess it up and we need God's help to clean up the mess that we create. And so that's where we are. So let's pray. We'll jump into today's message and we'll get right to it. Jesus, Father, we come into this place with a need um, for belonging, a need to be known. Every one of us, Father, has a story. Some of us walk into today excited about what you might do. Others of us are on our last leg, wondering if there's anything that you can do. Some of us are just simply curious about if you're real. But all of us, Father, share a similar longing, a need, that we have a need for a place that we could call home, a need that we could belong. Jesus, we have a fear in us that says, if people really knew me, would they still want me sitting in their midst? Father, more than anything else, we need to know that we are your children. God, those who belong to you are called children, and those who are not, who don't yet belong to you can become your children. Father, would that be a reality that you speak to us today? In fact, right now, Father, would you give us a sense of your great love that longs for us and calls us children? Just for a moment, Father, would you allow that to sink in as we hear your words today? Today, if we hear anything, Father, might it be that you intend for us to live as your children. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, if you want to pull out your bulletin and flip it over with our new cool paper-saving bulletin, you can do that. We're going to be in Galatians 3 and Galatians 4. If you want to turn in your own Bible or follow along however you want, everything you need, though, will be on the screen or on that outline so you can follow along there. Um, I was thinking this last week. Last summer, I got to do the coolest thing. I got to go to, and some of you knew this, I've mentioned this before. I got to go to um, a movie studio. I got to go to the Walt Disney Animation Studio. So it's not like I went, to, and I got to go on a tour. And it wasn't like a tour, like they had the organized tour with a group of like us, which is like, you know, about six or 700 people in a room, and they just kind of walk you through. And this is where Walt Disney had a cup of coffee. And this is, you know, it, was, it wasn't that. It was like I got to go where they're actually making the movies in this room. It was amazing. And um, my, my aunt, who worked for Disney for 35 years, contacted her friend at the studio and said, would you mind giving my nephew and his kids, like, a tour of the studio? And she was like, no problem. So I didn't know that's what it was. But all of a sudden, we're walking around, and there's, like, the people are literally making the movie Big Hero 6 as we're walking around. Like, wow, this is what this looks like. This is what they got. One guy brings us into his office, and he's like, hey, I want to show you this scene in this movie. And we're like, okay. So he fires up his computer, and he starts drawing on the computer, on the screen, like, stuff he wants the movie to look like. And, he, and this is stuff I'm sure he probably could get in trouble for doing, for, like, showing us this movie before it's released. And we're like, oh, no way. This is how this movie's. And, it, you know, so now when that movie won an, an Academy Award, I was like, I kind of helped shape that movie. <laughs> My big project I was working on, you know, it's like a lot of people don't know that. I don't get a credit, but I just, I don't need the credit, really. <laughs> it's just I'm kind of a big deal. Anyways, um, so we walk around the studio, and they give us all this. They're like, you can't go in this room because that's a movie coming out 
in a little while, we can't show you that stuff. And I'm like, yes, you can. Can you please show us? And they're like, she's like, no, I can't. I'm like, okay, cool. I'll just I'll try a little harder. They're scoring the movie. I mean, they're adding the background music. The way they do it is they literally have, they're showing the movie on a screen behind, the, the behind this orchestra, which is happening while we're there. And it's not in the room, but they have a camera for people watching the people. So in other words, there's a camera. So imagine you're the orchestra. There's a camera facing us and a camera facing the orchestra. So you can watch people watching them score the movie. So you're standing there, and they're, like, showing a scene. And there these people are, like, waving at the camera while they're, the guy's showing a movie. I mean, it's like, um, this is how they do this stuff. And I'm there watching them do this. Now, the coolest thing of all the stuff I saw, honestly, this is going to sound a little bit bizarre. The coolest thing I got to see was the ABC commissary, the cafeteria. Okay, this is like, so they're like, do you want to get lunch at the commissary? And I'm like, yes. Now, I've seen, like, amazing stuff. There's all these studio lots. There's all this stuff. And they're like, you want to have lunch at the studio? I'm at this thing. And I'm like, yeah, of course I do. And I walk in, and everybody, of course, is, like, beautiful. It's all these Hollywood types. And anybody who's not beautiful, you immediately assume that person's a producer. They're, like, a big deal. You know what I mean? They know beautiful people. And so I'm a ma- I'm So now here's what I realize as I'm, as I'm in this place. Everybody in this place has got to be somebody important. They have to be. And I realize, I don't know who all these people are. My, my, my oldest son is being introduced to the people who made the movie, some of you guys know this movie, who made the movie Wreck-It Ralph, which is like one of his favorite movies. But he's not totally getting that the people he's talking to are kind of a big deal. And I'm, he went with my aunt to go talk to those folks. I'm buying my other son a lunch, and I'm, I'm trying to buy a burrito, and I'm watching my oldest talk to these folks, and I'm like, oh, that's a big deal. Let's get with the burrito. Come on, i got to get out there and say hi to these people. I wanna, I'm going to be important, whatever. And he's still talking to them. He doesn't have any idea. They're just, they're just adults to him. He doesn't totally get it. He meets the people who make Big Hero 6, these producer, the writer, all these folks. And he's like, hey, nice to meet you, so-and-so. He's like, can I eat my French fries now? And I'm like, oh, my God, this is a giant deal. These are really big people. And then I realize it dawns on me. I didn't know who those people were. I mean, maybe I would have recognized their name, maybe, because I've seen those movies five million times in my house. But I would have known who they were. And I realized that at that moment... The biggest people in this room may not be recognizable, which means I might actually be one of the biggest deals in this room and people don't know. They could be looking at me going, that guy's probably a giant producer. You know he's not that beautiful. So he's got to be a producer in here. He's got to be kind of someone kind of important. So I start kind of believing that about myself a little bit. Like, you don't know, so why not? Yeah, I drove here in a minivan. All the cool studio execs drive him now. That's what I do. And I'm just imagining now I'm this person. And my, meanwhile, my youngest son is climbing on the outdoor gazebo that's over people eating food. I'm like, you have to get down from there because I'm a really important person. And never mind the fact that I'm also carrying the, the, gift, the bag from the gift shop that has all these, like, toys and stuff. Like, like, all producers buy stuff from the gift shop and carry around the bag that says I'm a really important person. I mean, it's like, but I imagine for a moment, what if I was somebody? What if I was in here and everybody thought I was a big deal? And then I started to realize... I don't really belong here. <laughs> if I wasn't with this other person, there's no other way I would have even gotten to eat here. I mean, multi-million dollar deals are happening. People are eating a chimichanga and talking about their next movie. And I'm like, I'm not one of those people. But it raises this question that every one of us faces, maybe to a lesser degree based on the crowds that were around. But essentially what we're facing is this question, am I really somebody? I mean, if I walk into a room, do I belong here, A, and B, Am I kind of a big enough deal that people will acknowledge me as somebody? Because most of us wrestle with the idea as it pertains to our own identity, and we go, I wonder if it's enough. I wonder if who I am is really enough. Am I somebody? 
I mean, if, it really boil, if I boil it all down, do I really belong here at all? Do I belong anywhere with any group of people who I try to have these relationships, whatever? Do I belong here? Am I enough? Am I enough to belong? In the early church, there's this question kind of surfacing in the, as the church is beginning to form. And the idea is, who should belong here? I mean, who are we really? What are we going to be like? What's, our, what's the basic identity of our church? Not only do I belong, but more so as people are forming up the church community, it's which people in the world can actually belong here. Because here's what's happening. You have to understand, the church is forming this group of people, these followers of Jesus. Some of those people, at least initially the church started with people who were all Jewish. People who had a long history that pointed them way back to this guy named Abraham. And then into the exodus out of Egypt. These are people who had that history. And they had, they had customs and behaviors and rituals that all connected them to that story. And Jesus is the Jewish rescuer for the whole world. And they start saying, you know what, people who want to be part of the church connected to Jesus, probably should become Jewish first. But the problem with that is, there's all these people who are discovering about Jesus, who want to be connected to him, and they have none of that story. And they're going, we want Jesus. And this group of people, the most strict of these people, this group called the Judaizers, or the Judaizers, these guys say, no, 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 no. Cool that you want to be a part of that, a part of us. We love that. We're all about that. But you're going to have to be Jewish first, which means... You're going to have to start adopting some customs. You're going to have to give up some other things. You're going to have to dress differently, wear things differently. You're also, oh yeah, by the way, because we're part of this group called this covenant community, which means this agreed upon relationship between God and his people, the marker of that covenant community, some of you know where this is going, is circumcision. So you can imagine the guys are like, oh cool, we like your, this is really cool gathering. People are welcome here and whatever. We have to do what? Yeah, I was just, I was just church shopping. There's lots of great churches around. I'm not sure really. There's... A lot of things to consider. It's a big decision to be connected in this group. I think actually <laughs> the pagan stuff was actually not so bad. I mean, they, you can imagine now that the, all this pressure is on them. Now, one of the things that they're wrestling with is that they, like I said, this covenant community, they believe that they are the sole and exclusive recipients of this promise given to this guy named Abraham. Abraham, if you ask a Jewish person, who's the first Jew? They'll say Abe, Abraham. He's the guy. He's number one. And God gives to this guy a promise about an inheritance, about things to come, about land and seed and blessing, seed being descendants. You're going to have all this stuff. And the exclusive recipients of that promise are the Jews, is what they are understanding to believe. And now these other people are showing up that are a part of this community, and they're kind of claiming that they're part of that, they get to receive that same kind of blessing. And the Judaizers are going, wait, 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 wait a second. No, you, you, can, you can have some of this. But you're going to have to become like us first. In other words, you don't yet belong. You aren't yet enough. The most distinctive thing, actually you can read about this debate, which happened, you can read it in Acts chapter 15 if you want to read about it later. But essentially, you have this picture of how Jewish do people have to be to follow Jesus. Because one of the distinctives about the, Jew, about the Jews was the peculiar way in which they adhered to this thing called the law, the Torah. The first five books of their Hebrew Bible. This is, they had this adherence to these kinds of laws which made them peculiar and unique and set apart from the rest of the peoples in the ancient world. And so this is the conflict that's in the early church at the very beginning. Who belongs? How Jewish enough are these people and how much should we make them follow the law? Here's what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 beginning in verse 24. Here's what he says. So the law, mere Paul's a guy who is Jewish. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Let me explain what this means. 
the word, this is the law, we talk about the Torah. The word guardian literally translates as the word, as the word babysitter. Some translations have it a little bit, a little bit kinder. Schoolmaster or child conductor. Which, that's a great phrase. My, um, my oldest son, when we started, we were having babysitters, he's old enough to understand, like, words and language and all kinds of stuff. He's like, he's probably six years old or so, and he goes, I don't like the, t- I don't like, I don't like the word babysitter. Please don't use that word. And we're like, he goes, because I'm not a baby. And we're like, that's true. What would you like us to refer to the person who takes care of you when we're not here? He goes, day and night care. Okay, it's a little more cumbersome, but we'll go with it. You know, maybe we should have used child conductor, but I don't know, but that would have been helpful for him. But this is what, this is what Paul's saying. Now listen, for the, the guardian, this, this word in Greek, it's literally in most cases for, it's a slave of a household who makes sure that kids get to where they're supposed to go, who makes sure that they behave right and punishes them accordingly when they don't. This person, the guardian, is never a member of the family but it is a necessary part of a kid's growing up. What Paul is saying is, you no longer, that this, the law was our guardian until Christ came in. There's, the guardian is getting us to a place. The babysitter is going to get us to a place. And then you will hope that your kids will be old enough to not need that babysitter any longer. Babysitter is a term, you know, dads kind of stumble over a lot. I don't know if, I, I'm assuming it's mostly dads. I'm, I don't think that's as much moms. But I'll give you my own experience, and you can decide if you want to nod your head or not, guys. But I'll just tell you my own experience. I know that when I say um, to people that, oh, Amanda's having a girl's night. I'm, so I'm going to be babysitting tonight. Moms go, oh, really? You're babysitting? Your own children? Yeah, I'm watching them. Yeah. You know, what, you know what they call that when a dad watches his own children? Parenting. Oh, I, I mean, I, I just, I mean, I was, I mean, I, I mean, I was like child conducting. I, I don't know. I was like babysitting, child conducting. I was parent, whatever. I mean, but we guys do this, and you could say this to a mom, and they're like, no, 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 you're the parent. You don't babysit. We pay babysitters, and you, they do a good job, but you're not. It's like, okay, I'm totally sorry. We're gonna eat corn dogs and watch a movie. That seems like the same thing a babysitter would do. But you just have this sense. Some of you are like, I never feed my kid GMOs and corn dogs, and uh, we don't watch movies in our house. We read books. We read books, and we eat grass from the lawn, and that's what we do. Your kids hate your babysitters, and I just want you to know. I mean, that's a tor- anyway, because what we do is we eat corn dogs and we watch movies and whatever else. That's when dad's child conducting, okay? Now, what, what Paul's saying is there's going to be a time when you don't need the babysitter any, any longer. Hopefully at some point your kids get to a place where it's like we don't need to be babysat and we got it, right? He keeps on. So he keeps on. Verse 25 says this. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, under a babysitter. There's something then that's working instead of the law, which is now we're calling faith. And he's saying, we're no longer under a guardian, verse 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. Formerly, what you have is people are wandering away from, people are not, people are wondering if they're enough. They're wondering if they belong. And there's a distinction now given to people who were once far from God. You are children of God. Children of God. You belong. Now you can imagine for the good church people, the Judaizers who follow all the rules and want people to follow rules, all of a sudden you have a group of people who were previously identified literally as the dirty dogs, the outsiders, who have no place at the table. Now all of a sudden, God is saying in Jesus, they all get to be a part of this same table, eating the same food, hanging out, co-mingling with people. 
here last week you heard us say this, that dirty things, unclean things, always make clean things dirty. This is a really critical thing for when people, especially for the Jews, who are like always trying to keep themselves pure. And now you have the people themselves deemed to be unclean who are now part of this, this same group. And God is referring to them as children. Children was the word used to describe God's people, the Israelites. They had the exclusive claim on that term of being God's kids. And now, Paul is saying, because of Jesus, anybody who's got Jesus is one of God's children. So the whole question about, hello, my name is, what do I put here? Do I put, you know, Gentile, outsider, Greek, pagan, or do I put Christian? Do I put slave, or do I put rich person, or do I put, what, what am, I, am I a guy who's a dirty person, or what, what do you put, what's the name now? And here's what Paul will say, verse 28, for all you who are, oh sorry, verse 27, for all you who are baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. Now here's what he's saying. When we think about baptism, most of us immediately think of one of two things, depending on how, where you grew up, what your tradition is. Some of you imagine a baby being sprinkled with some water. Others of you imagine someone being dunked underwater, the way we kind of do it at our church. The word baptism literally means in Greek, it means the word immersed, to be submerged under. Now, what Paul is talking about here isn't necessarily just the act of physical baptism. What he's talking about is this other way that the word baptism is used, which means to be placed into. And what he's saying is, you have been placed into Christ and have clothed yourselves with Christ, meaning the principal identity that you have for yourselves is not any of those other things. It's Jesus. So let's not worry about those things, essentially, what he says. The other way, to, the other, other way it's critical to understanding baptism is this right here. When you think about baptism, that which is being baptized takes on the qualities of the substance into which it is being immersed. That which is being baptized takes on the qualities of the substance into which it is being immersed. This is the way, in the ancient tradition, in the way in which dirty things are made clean is by some kind of baptism, a bath. What you have to understand if we talk about Jesus is that people begin to take on the qualities of the substance into which they're being immersed, which Paul says, verse 27, you were baptized into Christ. The way in which you are now seen is always through the lens of Jesus. He'll go on to say, how should we divide ourselves? How should we separate ourselves out? How should we determine who's really the most belonging of this group? And he says it this way. There is neither Jew, Judaizers, you people trying to get everybody to follow these laws, nor Gentile, meaning outsider, non-Jew, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. All of the ways you could have divided each other, all the ways you could have separated each, each other from each other, those things have been subsumed into this person called Jesus. This community is going to be united as people intended to be children of God in the person of Jesus. Because you have been placed into him. Now, all of the conversation about all of what this means, whatever formerly divided, whatever made people second class, it's all gone. And then he says this, verse 29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, remember, the Jews have an understanding about themselves that they are the exclusive recipients of Abraham's blessing, the one given to Abraham by God. This is in Genesis chapter 11. You can read about uh, 15. Genesis 11, 15, and 17. You can read about it. Uh, but you have, you have, they believe they're the, they're the exclusive recipients of the bless, blessing given to Abraham. And now what Paul says is, no, 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 no. Anybody in Jesus is the recipient of that blessing. It, this, 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 um, the heirs according to the promise simply means the recipients according to that covenant agreement between God and Abraham. You get it. And the only, the, 
he'll clarify in verse 16, actually. The idea of the seed here, it's not seeds, it's one person. The fulfillment of this blessing comes to a person named Jesus, and it is all according to that. Now, everybody gets enfolded into Jesus. That's the way it starts who belong in the church. And he says, this is what makes you kids. You don't have to, you don't have to continually try to prove yourself to be worthy of God's, to be worthy of being called God's children. You are God's children when you are in Jesus. Be catching the theme here. Now, my own kids, I hope, I, I can't, I'd never asked them this, but they would probably look at me like I was absurd. If I said to them, do you guys feel like every day you have to get up and earn the right to be my children? They would look at me like, no, we're your kids no matter what. No matter how good of a father I am or how bad of a father I am, they're still my children. No matter how good their behavior is or how bad their behavior is, I'm still their father. They do not earn being my children. They just are my children. Some of us in this room have an understanding about God by which we look at him and say, I really want to be one of your kids. I know I haven't been behaving correctly, so I understand then that I'm not one of your kids. That's backwards. What Paul will say, what the gospel will say over and over again in the Bible, you'll hear this over and over again if you read it correctly, is you who are in Jesus are already my kids. If you want to behave and be obedient, that's absolutely critical, but it doesn't make you less or more of my children. You live out of the reality that you're my kids and I love you and I'm crazy about you. But you do not have to earn that right. That's given to you. With me? Some people might have said woo at that point. But that's, I mean, that's fine. I, I felt like I was on something there. That's okay. Woo, someone. Great, thank you. <clears throat> there we go. All right. Now, to this church, Paul will say this. He will say this thing. He'll say this really critically. He's saying, this is kind of a maturity moment for you, church in Galatia. He'll say this in church four, or verse, chapter 4. He'll, he'll kind of change the tone a little bit. Here's what, he, here's what he says. Verse 1. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He's talking about now. This is grow up, growing up language. When an heir, the person who gets to have all the estate that's a future, is younger, they don't really get to do anything with it. They just get to live as though they someday will inherit it. The heir is subject to the guardians and trustees until the time set by the father, meaning now you can take over the land or the estate. So also we were underage. We were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. Here's what you have to understand. This is a little bit complicated. Just bear with me for a second. What he's saying is this. You, the, all of you guys who are, going to be, who are now part of this church community, at one time, you were, you were under, this, the, under the, the guardians, the babysitter, the law. And you were also kind of under this kind of slavery, under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. Let me just tell you what that looks like. In the ancient world, people would respond to cosmic events, big weather phenomena. And they would say about those things, God is up to something, we've got to do something. We would respond in a certain way. They believe in so many ways that their entire lives were fated to a particular future because of the way the circumstances in the world were going. Now, the, the, this is a little bit debated in the passage, but you have that there are, some would say, it's the, Paul's writing to the Greeks going, these non-Jews saying, you're going to have to break with some of these traditions about that stuff. And some would say he's writing to both groups, the Jews included, because the Jews have set their calendar on the lunar calendar. And he's saying, and he'll say it again in Colossians, why are you trying to follow all of these sort of new moon festivals and everything else? And he goes, those things are not what, which make you my children. You are already my kids through Jesus. This is what makes you my children. 
So you no longer have to be babysat by the law, and you aren't fated to anything like that. Instead, there's a new distinction that makes you my kids. It's not just this kind of fear about the things that are happening around. No, 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 that's not how it works. Because what he says is this. A babysitter is a wonderful thing. Let's just be honest. It's great. Those of you who have little kids, you have a babysitter, it's the greatest. You're, you're, whatever they want. Our, our rule in our house for babysitters is our, kid, our children cannot die, and if the house doesn't burn down, that's probably a, a plus. That's it. Nobody can get hurt and just, you know, whatever. If they don't die, we're probably good. It's our th- we have three children, so it's like we had one. It was like call us every eight minutes. I want to hear his breath, and then you can hang up the phone again. Okay, whatever. Now, a babysitter can only enforce it can only help a kid to have the right behavior and can probably administer a mild degree of sort of like punishment or whatever. But really, that's all they can do. When we talk about parenting, a wise person, a friend of mine who I heard once speak on this says this. He goes, the role of parenting isn't to create well-behaved children. No matter how much you want to impress our teachers or our coaches or our friends or whatever else it is, the goal of parenting isn't to create well-behaved children. The goal of parenting is to create mature adults. That one day we would say, hopefully, you will leave the house, children. (laughs) It's been great to have you here. Go build your own life somewhere else and we'll be grandma and grandpa. That's what you hope, right? But the idea is that you would help the kids to become that, not to stay well-behaved robots. Paul is saying the time of the babysitter and this kind of thing is not what really what's intended for you. You have a different, there's something more that God intends for you. And here's what he says, not just to be babysat by a stranger, but this. When the time set had fully come, God had sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem, which is to say set free, those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship or daughtership, as it were. We would become kids. We understand all of us in Jesus become and take on the role of being children. You know, I think for all of us, there's a, there's a part in us, though, that goes, yeah, 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 we're kids, but we could probably lose it. We could probably disappoint our parents to the degree where they would say, no, 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 no more. Not around. Because there's a part in us, and wouldn't you agree, there's a part in us by which we live our lives wondering if we broke the rules of the groups to which we belong, mostly unwritten rules, whatever group you can imagine yourself belonging. High school students know this better than anybody else. But if you broke the unwritten rule of the law, Whatever that might be, that you would be cast out, and then you would start wondering, I must not have been enough. If I don't look a certain way, if I cannot take the right vacations, if I cannot give my kids these things, if I, if I cannot achieve this much, if I am not cool enough, whatever that word is, if I do not have the same kind of attractiveness that everybody else has, then I must not belong, and I'm afraid that they will cast me out, and I will do whatever it takes to belong. We have this weird obsession. To make ourselves worthy of love. We can hear over and over and over again, I love you, you're one of us, we're bored together, whatever. but we secretly wonder, I wonder what happens if I stop being lovable. We all have this secret obsession with making ourselves worthy of love, and it is devastating for us. You know, really, I think in a lot of ways, we continue to live a life that is little different than all of every single high school-themed movie that we've ever seen. From John Hughes movies in the 80s, children of the 80s, 
on into things like Clueless in the 90s and then on into Mean Girls in the early 2000s, there is that same sense. There's a group of people who govern the behaviors of everybody else, and should you take one step out of that group's sort of deemed laws, then you're cast out. We still live that way. It's just more sophisticated. And we wonder, am I enough? Am I, am I really enough to be loved, to be seen as a child, to belong? Am I enough? See, God isn't intending you to behave well based on the fear of being cast out. God wants you to live in the fullness of life because you are called his children. Yes, someone give a woo right there. I heard that. Thank you. Woo, there we go. Now, here's what he says to clarify. Because you are his sons or sons and daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out Abba, Father. Abba is a a very familiar term for kids to use of their own fathers. It's not necessarily a term of disrespect at all. It's a term of deep familiarity like dad. One who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. He goes from saying, now we're welcoming these dirty dogs, so to speak, to the table. And they get to hang out with us. Not only do they get to hang out, they don't have to go through all the rituals. And not only that, they're going to share in the inheritance that you Judaizers wanted for yourselves and for the truest Jews among us. He's saying they get to share in that inheritance and... They get to no longer, they get to be called children and share in this. This is like, they're like overwhelmed with this. You have to imagine now. For people who are good church people, who believe in the rules, those people have to be saying to themselves, I can't believe these people are here. We've been told our whole lives they're just going to ruin us and make it dirty in here. What are we supposed to do with that? Because apparently, be, be, being a member in God's family begins and ends with a relationship with him where we get to call him father and he calls us sons and daughters. Paul will use the language over and over again in his, in his writing. He'll write about the idea of freedom from slavery and freedom from being called orphans over and over and over again. Years ago, a friend of mine named Roy Schenkenberger, he wrote a song. And I want you to hear, he just captures this beautifully. And I put some of the lyrics on your outline, but I want you to hear it actually. Um, and I was convinced, too, when he was writing the song, I'm like, this is going to be huge. You're going to be enormous. You're going to be the biggest thing ever. And none of you have maybe heard of Roy. He's good. He lives in this area. Some of you heard of Roy? Yeah, good. Okay, cool. Some of you raise your hands. Great. He's a, I'm a huge fan of his. So I hope that everybody, you know, buys the CD. I don't even know if he still has this anymore. People even buy CDs anymore? What year is this? Okay. Anyway, I want you to hear the lyrics of this song. I'll put some of the words on the screen. So also some of them are on your outline. You can check this out. Go ahead. Let's play that song. Standing invitation to the Father's celebration of his 
He'll continue with these words. Listen to this. Forgotten and alone, the one, the one who's wandered far from home, we're not orphans anymore. To the tired and confused, the ones with nothing left to lose, we are not orphans anymore. So many of us are living as if we are wards of the state. Wondering if we ever get a chance to be called enough to be deemed children. And nothing, there's very few better explanations than we're not orphans anymore for what God wants to do in our life. To the tired and the confused, to the forgotten and alone, to all of those of us who are wondering, is there any way that I can begin to make sense of this world? God looks at you and says, I want you to stop living as an orphan. You're my sons and you're my daughters. You're sons and daughters. Woo! There's classic language in the Bible for what, when they talk about the future of things to come, that what God, what God describes a heavenly feast. He describes this idea where, you, you'll see this in, in a couple times in Jesus' ministry where, he, ministry, where he describes what this looks like, where people are coming to sit around to feast together and all the sons and the daughters come home to this feast. And what you have is this picture that the access to the table where everybody gets to eat is through the person of Jesus. And there are no second-class seats. There is no arrangement of seating based on, you know, who gets to sit next to the birthday boy or whatever that is. You know, we all did when we were kids at the birthday table. It's like everybody's invited. There's no second-class table. There's no scraps for the dogs. It's everybody gets to eat at this table, and they will eat to their fulfillment. And the principal guiding sort of ideal behind this idea, behind this heavenly feast idea, it's rooted in one thing that absolutely shapes the nature of the early church and into, into beyond, which is this one word, abundance. There's a belief that whatever God is going to do, there will always be more than enough. There's a belief that his love is more than enough. There's a belief that whatever he's going to provide is going to be more than enough. No matter how much we try to hoard it, there's going to be more than enough. Amen, exactly. Now the Judaizers are saying, we have to limit how much God can kind of do here because we don't want all these people to come in here and take what's ours. That you could clarify with one word, which is scarcity. There's not enough of it to go around, so we've got to hoard it. And principally people who wonder, am I enough, are wondering, this, are wondering the question, is there really going to be enough out there in the world? To put it another word, other way, is it, if it's possible not to be enough, then there may not ever be enough. In other words, let me try to clarify that a little bit. If you are a person who believes there's a limited amount of good that God can give, then anybody else who would try to also take it would ruin it for me. I have three kids. And I'm always looking, I grew up as, as an only child. And I only had one parent. So, you know, it was like, I don't, I only know what that life is like. And so I look at Amanda all the time and I go, why are they fighting like that? She goes, they're brothers and sisters. That, that's what they do. And I'm like, is that okay? She's like, yeah, they're going to work it out. I'm like, but, I mean, they're, she's like, don't worry about it. I'm like, really? My youngest, he has this belief, which I think all youngest children do, I'm finding, is that what they tend to believe is when we're spending time, either Amanda and I are spending time together in front of him or with the other kids, his belief immediately goes into panic mode. I don't know if there's going to be enough love to go around. Are you, well, look what I'm doing. He'll, you know, break something or burn something or whatever else he wants to do. And it's like, okay, now he's, you know, literally yesterday he must have banged on the door. You know, he was in the hallway. He, he was really tired. He's banging on the door. He must have banged on it for 30 minutes. And he literally says, Dad, I'm trying to get mom's attention, but she keeps ignoring me. 
He's like, maybe you got to try a different approach. But I don't know any. He literally says, I don't know another way to get her attention. There's a limited amount of good. There's a limited amount of resources. I wonder if I'm lovable enough. And if people don't respond quickly enough, then there may not ever be enough. So i got to hoard it. For the church. The church. I'm going to give you an example. This is so great. I was talking to someone this week who we're talking, we're doing a little staff kind of Bible devotion before a staff meeting, and we're asking people about some traditions. And someone, one person says, they're actually our children's director, um, Susan, she goes, oh yeah, she goes, we had a tradition, we had Friday night pizza night. She goes, we didn't have a lot of money, but we'd always get pizza and we'd get like some Cokes and whatever else, and our kids, we have, they have four kids, she goes, our kids would bring whoever they wanted to come over to have pizza. And she goes, we didn't intend it for it to be a big deal, but now that my, all of my kids are grown up and are out of the house, they all want to come back. When they come back on Friday night, they all want to have pizza night. She goes, because what would happen is people would invite, they'd invite their friends, and the conversations we would have as a family, and with these friends, was so rich and beautiful. It was something we never could have planned on. We just had this stuff, and we always believed, even though there, we didn't have a lot of money, we always believed there was going to be enough food for everybody that came, and there always was. And my kids long for it. Now here's, let me just give you, you use this little pig word picture. I want you to imagine, for if there, one of the kids said, hey, everybody else, other kids, stop inviting people. There's not going to be enough pizza. It's better when it's just us. That kind of sounds horrible, doesn't it? What the Judaizers do and what some people in the church started to do is to say, this is for us. We like the way it is now. We're no longer going to include other people to be a part of this story. We don't like that because they're going to take it away from us. That's a belief that there isn't enough. How much more beautiful the story if they say, what's happening here is so great. God is at work changing lives. And as long as there are people who are far from him, who are living as orphans, that's not acceptable. Let's include them into this. Let's include them in the adventure of faith. Let's invite them into what's going on here because we believe there will always be enough. Woo! Thank you. Some of you. There are a few of you into it. There you go. There will always be enough. There's a spirit of invitation that takes over the early church. There's a spirit of invitation that takes over people who believe there's enough. And there's this outpouring of generosity. The people say, I want to be a part of what God's doing here, and I want to be a part of what's happening. I believe in what's going on. We, Jordan talked earlier about our Thursday night service that starts this Thursday. And it's not this message redone. It's next week's message before, it's, before Sunday. It's going to be a great time. There's going to be all these folks who are not yet connected in the church who we are making space for by having a Thursday night service. And your generosity contributes to that reality. Woo. Thank, there you go. See, now we're, some of your fault. You get it now. The way in which the church celebrated the most real term in which the, the, the most visible expression of this idea of people being included who through Jesus are part of this family is something called the common table or last supper or communion. That among the most powerful and difficult and challenging things the church had to do was to eat with people who were formerly deemed to be disgusting people. Now we're going to share the same table. We're invited by the same person, Jesus, to be a part of this feast. And so in a moment, we're going to take communion. Let me tell you how this kind of looks. It's for people who are the forgotten and alone, the lost, the lonely, those who were formerly orphans who are now welcome at this table. It's not for perfect people. It's for people who call themselves children of God and Jesus. But the way it goes like this, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and after he'd given thanks, 
He said, this is my body which is given for you. In the same way he took the cup, the new cup of the new covenant, in my, he says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which has been poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. And whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, do so in remembrance of me. Meaning, I'm the host of this great party, at this great feast. And I paid for it at my own expense that you, no matter your past, no matter how difficult your journey has been, no matter how bizarre or absurd or embarrassing you might think it is, because you come through me, you get a seat at my table as one of my kids. That's good news. He says, I want you to share in everything, and I want you to remember that I did this for you, and so we're going to have a feast. We're going to eat. We're going to remember. We'll take bread, and we'll dip it into this cup, and remember that Jesus made a way for us to be with him at this table forever. Well, thank you. You can eat first. Okay. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray. And the band's going to come up, and we're going we're gonna to set up a time for communion. I'll give you some instructions on communion in just one second. So let's pray, and then we'll go into a time of communion. Father, we um, come before you. We know that we are, um, we have been orphans. We have wandered lost and alone. You do not do everything perfectly, but nothing, Father, once we walk with you, once we begin to step into a relationship with you, Jesus, can be taken away from us, that... Um, that the identity as, as your kids can never be taken away. And so, Father, now as we consider our own lives, might you speak to us in the depths of our own soul. Father, you call us to examine our own lives as we take communion. What To take an inventory of our own lives. Father, are there things that we need to confess? Are there people we need to make amends with? Are there things in our lives which would prohibit our own ability to understand the forgiveness and the life which you have given to us? Father, might we freely receive the gift of communion, remembering what you've done as your children not being babysat, not being merely simply people who are behaving better, but rather, Father, might we live out of the freedom of being your kids. So, Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. Here's how this will go. Um, there's communion stations all around. There's some in the back over there as well, but some of them are behind you. There's a couple stations up here in the front. And here's what we'll do. Someone will hold the bread and they will say, as you break off a little piece of it, they will say to you, this is Christ's body given for you. If you don't know what to say, you know, like sometimes you're like, what am I supposed to say there? You don't, like, you, like do I say all right or woo or thank you or whatever? Just the word kind of that the Bible uses often to say that's true is the word amen. Like, yes, I believe that. Yes, that's true. So they'll say this is Christ's body given for you. And you just say amen. And you take it and dip it into the cup. And as you dip it into the cup, the person will say to you, this is Christ's blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And again, amen. You can take it and eat it right there. You can eat it back in your seat. You can wait and hold it. You can pray. But we're going to take and eat together. And um, here's what I would say is, please don't take and eat and then make it a to-go meal. <laughs> Stay and respond. We're going to close out the service together. It's important that we do that because communion is intended to be a together time. So why don't we all stand together? And again, during this time, there's also be some people who love to pray with you. If you want to write prayers down on the prayer wall, you can do that as well. But let's come forward. Let's receive communion and remember as Christ's children what he did for us.